Good morning, Flagstaff. Good morning. I have to be honest, uh, standing up here and looking at you guys, this is totally unfair coming from Phoenix. Like I'm looking at this guy sitting on a car over here and I'm thinking we'd get third degree burns if we did that in Phoenix right now with the heat. So it is amazing to be with you. Um, Redemption Church, as Anthony said, is right now soon to be 10 congregations. We're about to launch North Mountain, which is in North Phoenix, and Redemption, to understand it best, really is a family of churches, and that's what we really communicate at a local level, is that we would be a family. There's nothing I, in my role as lead pastor of Redemption Arizona, struggle with more, and I think you could say despise more than the phrase playing church. Um, For some reason, the church has gotten to a point where we can do a lot of stuff but never really experience what Jesus desired for us to be as the family of God. And I love that about Redemption Flagstaff, is you guys are really pressing into what does it mean to really be a local family of people who are seeking uh, to follow Jesus and seeking to savor Jesus. So I like to say a lot when we're in environments like this that what we need is not songs and a sermon, we need God. And God is incredibly powerful and far more beautiful than most of us imagine. So I'm going to pray for that before we look at John chapter 2 for the first 12 verses. Father, we thank you for gifts that you give. You are the giver of every good and precious gift. I thank you personally for this weather. I thank you for the faces that I'm looking at. Um, God, the environment that we're surrounded by. But God, thank you for people. Uh, Thank you for all of our stories. Uh, God, thank you even in the midst of our pain and for our pain as pain provides this path to uh, deeper power. And so, God, we pray that you would just meet us this morning and you'd speak to us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in John chapter 2. The gospel of John is towards the front of the New Testament. Now, interesting, the New Testament is actually towards the back of the Bible, There's a bunch of the Bible that the majority of it's the Old Testament, but the front of the New Testament, which just to make sense is actually towards the back of the Bible because it's the New Testament. Um, The Gospel of John's there. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the beginning of the New Testament. And John speaks to us today about a wedding party or a wedding feast is the way he speaks about it. So I'd love for you to think for a minute. Um... What's the best party you've ever been to? And specifically, what's the best wedding party you've ever been to? I want you to use your imagination to try to think about what it was and what made it the best. When I think about that, I think the best wedding party I was ever a part of was my best friend, which was actually the first wedding I ever went to. It was my junior year of college, 1999. So you don't need to do the math. I'm 42, almost 43. Um, 1999, he got married. We went to high school together. He actually went to play baseball at Texas Tech. I played baseball at ASU. I show up to this wedding and five of us planned this moment for when what we call the wedding reception, which would be the wedding feast in this text, happened that we were going to come out. We were going to go to the bathroom, and we did. We took off. You know you wear tuxedos, or guys do oftentimes, not all the time, at weddings. We wear tuxedos, but we took the long white shirt off, and they had chosen that we wear vests. So we just put the vests on. So we're bare-chested, you know, 
comes down to a V-neck. We have our arms free and we go out with no shirts on and we sing. This was the day of boy bands, right? So we sing Backstreet Boys songs. Some of you guys are too young, so look it up. The song was I want it that way. And we go out and we do this whole performance on the dance floor, lip syncing, I want it that way. And it was phenomenal. I was the best of the five by far. Um, but that is a very memorable moment of a wedding. But what made it amazing was the laughter. It was the ability to share food and wine and drink with each other. But ultimately what it was is relationship. In the heart of the Bible, when you look at it all the way through, these two words of relationship and experience, relationship and experience, relationship with God and experience of him, real, tangible, taste, touch, sight, hearing of Jesus himself. Look at 1 John, the same John that writes the gospel, writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. The very beginning of 1st John, he speaks about Jesus and he says, the one we have seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, touched with our very hands. The one they really had relationship with and therefore real relationship always creates real experience. Well, the environment that we find ourselves in, this wedding in John chapter 2 speaks to this relationship and experience. John chapter 2 verse 1, and on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now the apostle John speaks about the third day often throughout the gospel of John. The third day is this moment of light and darkness, both in the beginnings of Genesis and he speaks about it as such throughout the Gospel of John. So get the image, the backdrop of light and darkness. There are realities in the world that are dark. Can I get an amen? Right? There are moments in our minds that feel really dark. Moments we wake up and our hearts and our souls and the very depths of who we are feel dark. And we're looking for the moment where light would shine in the midst of darkness. Jesus brings light into darkness consistently, and he does here as well. So on the third day, there was a wedding. Most translations say a wedding feast. Now, feast is hard for us to understand in our context because there's two major reasons we struggle with the idea of feasting. One is that most of us, not all of us, but most of us are rarely hungry, I think about often when I was a kid, we used to talk about getting gourmet food or going to a gourmet restaurant. You don't hear that phrase very much anymore because it's almost like everything's gourmet and we gorge all the time. But in many parts of the world and even in parts of Flagstaff, there are people that actually know what it is to be hungry and to eat just little by little. And when they have a moment to have a feast, it's special. Feasting has this moment where there's a lot of food, there's a lot of drink, and here's the next reason we struggle with understanding feasting in that context is it was a lot of time. Now I'm going to ask all of you, look down at your wrist for a minute. Some of you have watches, others of you need to grab your pockets because you have your phone, but we live in a society that's tied to the watch, to the clock. In these environments, relationship, and if you've traveled, you've experienced cultures like this, and they'll talk about it when you say, hey, 
service is starting at 10. People may show up at 10.30, but that's because the service or the community time goes to 2.30 or 3.30. But wedding feasts were feasts for these people because they were unique, they were deeply relational, there was tons of food, and it took a lot of time. So when you want to get into the Gospels and you want to get into a story, you got to get into it and you got to allow it to slow down. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. What weddings do you get invited to? You get invited to weddings of people you know. So certainly this is a friend of Jesus. This is clearly a friend in which his mother is taking special interest because just in a moment, she's going to see a crisis at the wedding and be highly concerned. There's an ancient tradition that actually says they think this is the Apostle John's wedding. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it's very interesting. John throughout the gospel never mentions his own name, but here in the midst of this wedding, John knows intricate details of what are going on, what's going on at the wedding. Almost like he had a, a backstage view of what was going on. Then Mary, Jesus' mother, takes a special interest in this. Now, most people don't know this, but the Apostle John is not John the Baptist, which many of you may know, but the Apostle John was actually Jesus' cousin as well. So ancient tradition says this could be John's wedding, but at the very least, it was somebody very close to them. So that's why Jesus' mother is there, his disciples had also been invited. When the wine was gone. Now, if I read that sentence alone, I'd be like, that's a crisis. Right, Because in my home, when the wine is gone, I'm like, babe, I'm going to the store now. Now, I'm not a drunk. Right? You could ask my wife, but I do like wine. Right? In, in Phoenix in the summer, I like crisp, cold, white wine. But when it gets cooler, red wine's great as well. But when the wine's gone, there's a problem. Now, at a wedding feast in first century Palestine, it's a major crisis because as we said, the wine, it was supposed to last the whole entire environment of this party. Many of these wedding feasts went multiple days. The wine's gone and you can see this creates great anxiety. When the wine was gone, verse 3, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now this is where this text gets very, this story gets very interesting because Jesus responds and he's like, woman, I like this because Jesus speaks in this language of the streets. He doesn't even go, mom. He's like, woman, why are you bringing this up with me? This is like me at my house with my kids. My kids will be like, I can't find my slides. That's their sandals. Boy, I don't care. Like, they're not my slides to find, right? At this moment, he speaks to his mom. This is where this gets so weird, and many commentators, if they're honest, will go, nobody's provided a satisfactory answer of why this happens right here. But he says, woman, why do you involve me? And then he says, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, I got to say this again, slow down and listen. This is his mother. His mother already thinks he can do something about this. When the wine was gone, she goes to the winemaker. 
She goes to the servants. She goes to the master of the ceremonies. She goes to the father of the bride, the mother of the bride, the father of the groom, the mother of the groom. No, she goes to Jesus. Jesus, the wine's gone. Now you got to go, why does she go to Jesus? Well, she clearly thinks he can do something. And then he says, woman, like he's aggravated with her. Why do you come to me? My hour has not yet come. Let the tension of that and the anxiety of it sit for a minute. But from the context of the wedding feast, from the reality of the anxiety that Mary's feeling, that the mother and father of the bride would feel, it's this feeling of shame. They will be ashamed if the wine has run out before the feast is over. They would look stupid. They would look foolish. And understand, do, you, do any of you here know what nerves feel like? What anxiety feels like? I don't know if the mother of the bride or the father of the bride actually struggled day in and day out with anxiety. But if you struggle with anxiety, you're always on edge. I'm going to be very honest with you. The environment Anthony spoke about and the context in which I find myself leading right now, I'm encountering anxiety in ways I haven't before. And I'm telling my wife, like, I'm always on edge. Like, the littlest thing can tip me and I'll feel like tingles, almost like little needles, not sticking me hard, but on my skin. And you feel this weight inside of you. And a lot of times, anxiety is related to other people's perception this concern of shame or this reality of fear induces this. So there's fear in the midst of this party. Now here's his mother's answer after he says to her, woman, do not involve me. My hour has not yet come. His mother turns to the servants. Now this is interesting to me because the way you perceive it in the story is that Jesus was amongst the servants. Jesus wasn't dwelling amongst the popular people at the party, but he was amidst the servants. And she moves into him and she says this. He says, woman, why do you bother me? My hour has not come. And then she immediately, and this is what makes this so interesting. You think she'd go, oh, he's not going to do it. She doesn't. She's a mother who knows her son really, really well. And she turns immediately to the servants and hears what she says to them. Do... Hear that word, do whatever he tells you to do. The context is anxiety and fear. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, I just want to touch you right now, take you out of the story a minute and show you a lesson here. When you experience deep levels of anxiety, a huge amount of uncertainty in your life, the words Mary gives to the servants here who are clearly themselves worried. The wine is out. They're feeling anxiety and fear. When you feel anxiety and fear based in uncertainty, but you feel the fear and anxiety, the same words she said to them, God says to you, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you to do. So if you look at Matthew chapter 11, if you want to look back in your Bible um, or just mark it down or 
Look it up on your phone. There's this very famous passage that you may hear as you're around um, the Bible at all, and it's in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. And when you encounter being exhausted, tired, experiencing anxiety and fear, people may quote to you this verse. It's Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, most often people just say, go to Jesus and he'll give you rest. And you go, okay, but like, how do I go to Jesus? It's not like going to a doctor. He doesn't, there isn't an address for him right now. He doesn't have a house down the street for me. How do I go to Jesus? Well, you can go to Jesus in prayer, but specifically in this passage, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. How does he give us rest? Take my yoke upon you. This is his teaching. And learn from me, for I am gentle. Do you think about God this way? For I am gentle and humble in heart. If you come to me, and you learn from me. You do what I say. I'm gentle. I'm the right one to come to. I'm not a scary one to come to. Do what I say, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So from the story of the wedding at Cana, when you experience anxiety and fear, uncertainty, the potential of shame, listen to the words of his mother. Do whatever he tells you to do. Look at the scriptures and see the things Jesus is consistently telling us to do. They aren't super complicated. And then when you're in prayer and you feel impressed that he's telling you to do something, do it. It's there that we find rest for our souls. Now, this is where the story slows down, and I really like this. Um, just this past week, I should have asked him permission to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. My son's in seventh grade, and they're in the midst of COVID education, so they're still online, and he has two buddies. He just entered seventh grade, and he's in this grit program at his school, and they have a project, and here's the project in simple form. There's something they're supposed to be reading together, and they're supposed to read sections of it for three days straight. Read the, sec read the whole section one day, make observations, Read the same section again the second day, make new observations. Read the same section again the third day, make another set of observations. What's the teacher trying to teach them to do? Slow down when you're in a story. Don't just skim it. The best way to get into a narrative is to get into the narrative. Seek to position yourself where they're positioned. Seek to feel what they feel. Seek to see what they see. Ultimately for the point to know what they know. Well, this is what John helps us do. Nearby there stood six stone water jars. He wants us to imagine those. The kind that were used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing. Now this is really interesting. Nearby, there's six stone water jars that were the jars that Jews would walk in and they'd ritually 
which is religiously cleanse themselves. There were religious laws that they must partake of even to engage into a sacred moment like a wedding and a wedding feast. They would wash themselves. Now the people have already washed, so likely these jars are down at least halfway. So they see the six stone jars that were used for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus says to the servants, now again, this kind of gets at do whatever he tells you to do because right now they're supposed to do it. But I want you to see any type of growth necessitates our participation. Okay, I, I want to know you're listening to me. So when I say this again, say yes. Act like you're Pentecostal for a moment. Any type of growth in human life necessitates our participation. Ooh, good Pentecostals. Good job. It necessitates our participation. So even now, if this miracle is going to be accomplished, the servants must fill the jars. So let me just ask you right now, what is it in your life, the areas that you're seeking and desiring to change under God's guidance and with God's power that he's telling you you must participate in that you're just reluctant to do it? Or you've just procrastinated doing it? Or you just ultimately don't want to do it? Well, at that moment, ask God to change your desire that you would want to do it. Ask God to give you the motivation and self-control to not procrastinate. Ask God to give you the courage to step over the line in which you have the fear or the concern. But any type of transformation necessitates our participation. So Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars. They said, well, so did Mary. Mary said, do whatever he says with water. So they filled them to the brim. I love that. He said, fill them. They did it to the brim. Why did they do it to the brim? Because they're like, Jesus is God. We need to do above and beyond. No, because they're scared to death. They want wine. They're just like, fill it, fill it more, fill it more. And now it's to the brim and it's like spilling over, right? He says, fill it. They do it to the brim. Then he tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. This is the head of the party, the master of the feast. Right, The master of the ceremonies in a very real way was like a party animal. Now, here's what's amazing about Jesus. This truly is incredible as you read the Gospels. Jesus was preoccupied with parties. There's been New Testament scholars that will say Jesus ate his way through the Gospels, ate food. You like food? Hallelujah, right? So did Jesus. But what's really incredible, when you watch where he eats, it's always like these parties. Some of them are smaller in her home, but it's always around guests and he's eating with people. Why? If you slow down long enough to go, why do I love a good party? Well, they're fun. Why are they fun? Well, it ultimately comes down to it's a great experience and there's great people, relationship and experience. Remember those two words? Lock them in your mind, Right? Ask God to tattoo him there. It's relationship experience. Jesus was preoccupied with parties because he liked fun. He loved to create experiences because they're memorable and they seal relationships. And Jesus ultimately is seeking to seal a relationship with us and seal our relationships with each other. 
So Jesus prioritizes parties, even to the point, let me give you a little bit of freedom here. He enjoyed them so much that he was accused by the religious of elites of being like a wino. People would say a wine bearer. He hangs out with drunks and tax collectors and sinners. It wasn't so much that he was with them, but they watched him enjoy these people, look in their eyes, laugh with them, engage them, enjoy the parties, and it bothered them. So the reality is, is masters of the ceremony of wedding feasts at this time were almost certainly paid. That was like their job. They were like the MC. But Jesus shows here that he begins to see this reversal, that he's actually the master of the feast. He's actually the true prioritizer of the party. Here's the phrase I want you to think of. Jesus is so preoccupied with this party because he's so preoccupied with these people that he extends the feast. With no wine, the feast would end. He's preoccupied and determined to extend not just this feast, but the ultimate feast. That phrase of he's so preoccupied with extending the feast will get us a little bit further into understanding this mystery of him saying to his mother, woman, why do you come to me? My hour has not yet come. But let's look back. So the servants filled it to the brim. They take it to the master of the banquet. Now, verse nine, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been, for the first time, turned into wine. That's the first time we see the water turned into wine. Now, I don't know if you know wine very much or you know it, but like this isn't like Boone's Farm that you show up to a gas station and get, right? And you see this, the master of the feast, and now the servants are like, they pale out this, what was water, they move it. And I don't know if it's then, I don't know if it's when the master of the ceremonies get it, but at some point the servants are like, oh, good Lord, like, that's actually wine. Now it goes to the master of the banquets and it says he did not realize where it had come from. So who right now understands where it came from? Who does Jesus in this party decide to reveal? Because later in this passage, it says he reveals his glory. Who did he reveal it to? The servants, not to the master, not to the popular, not to the cool. And what's amazing about Jesus in this moment is he does this first miracle. You could say Jesus' ministry starts at a party and he does the first miracle, almost what seems to be reluctantly, and he does it, think about this, quietly. He doesn't go, to the master ceremonies, hey, let me get the mic. Hey, I just want you all to know I'm about to turn water into wine. He doesn't do that. He just says, go take it. Now, the master doesn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. I don't miss that contrast. The master didn't know. The master of the party didn't know, but the servants did. Then he called to the bridegroom aside and he said, now, who gets the public recognition? The groom. He brings the groom up and he's like, look at this man. Most 
grooms like him, serve the best wine first, and then when everybody's tipsy or drunk, they bring out poor watered-down wine. But this groom, right, while Jesus watches the whole thing, but this groom, after the... This groom saved the best until now. Now, some of your translations say saves the best to last. The real and best translation. That's why today I'm using the NIV. Um, but you have saved, you, the bridegroom, not Jesus, you have saved the best until now. Now, the bridegroom's got to be like, okay, we didn't even have enough money to buy enough wine. Like, certainly not the best, right? But you've saved the best Tell now. Then it says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now, I want to just stop there and say to you again something I've already said. How did he reveal his glory? He revealed it what seems to be reluctantly, he revealed it quietly, he revealed it humbly. He revealed it not overtly publicly. He revealed it to those who are overlooked. The servants who walk up to tables that people look beyond. All of the participants of the wedding looked at the groom and the bride, the master of the ceremonies, the father and mother of the groom, the father and mother of the bride. But Jesus reveals his glory to the servants, to the overlooked. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Now, we still have not resolved the tension of why this moment when Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they're out of wine. And he says, woman, why do you come to me? My hour has not yet come. The crowd and the people that knew were experiencing anxiety intention, anxiety and fear over the lack of wine. Jesus was experiencing turmoil intention over the reality of wine. Now, if I stop right now and I just say to any of you who've been around the church, and I want to acknowledge right now, there are people in this crowd right now sitting in this parking lot, and you span the spectrum of faith. Some of you don't believe and are here for the very first time, maybe showed up with a friend. Some of you are confused, don't know as much. Others of you have been around a Christian church a long time. For those of you who have some familiarity of any level with Jesus and wine, you may think about this story, but you also think about communion in various traditions. In this moment when he speaks about wine in the Last Supper, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Well, what ultimately was Jesus Christ on the cross shedding his blood? What was he ultimately doing? Well, Paul's letter to Titus says that he's ultimately ransoming, buying a family, a multicolored, multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-economic, multi-intellectual, all types and all stripes, poor and rich type of family to be brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. The end game, Jesus begins 
his ministry at a party here in Cana. And he ends his ministry with the wedding supper of the Lamb. So now think about this for a minute. When she comes to him and she says they're out of wine, it may be, we don't know for sure, but it may be that Jesus is thinking about his wedding. And this call that's been given from the beginnings of God making male and female when he says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and his mother standing in front of his face and cling to his bride, his wife. Now, who is Jesus's bride? But this multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-economic, multi-intellectual family. So he's thinking right now about his own wedding, but he knows in order to extend the feast at Cana into the feast of the wedding supper of the Lamb, what does he have to go through? The moment his own blood becomes wine. The moment he really shows what it means to go after his bride, which is us, church. And he knows the sacrifice, like any true love entails, that love is sacrificial, would mean the giving of his own life to purchase, to buy, to claim his bride. That's what the church is called, is the bride of Christ. What is the church? But all of those who've seen his glory revealed to those who become like little children, those who are willing to run around the wedding, not worried about what everybody thinks, but are just enthralled with relationship and experience. The bride is the one who becomes like little children, who goes, God, we just want to know you relationally, experientially. And he goes, in order for you to know me relationally, experientially, in order for us to know the God we were made by and for relationally and experientially. He has to deal with the barriers that divide us from relationship and experience with him and relationship and experience with each other. And it's sin. It's our sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. It's our sin together. It's the sin of the world. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to extend the feast to deal with the barriers in his very own blood. So as we move now into this time of reflection, folks, the greatest part of life, the greatest part is the eyes that you look into right now in this place, the eyes that you'll look into this afternoon. The greatest part of life is relationship. It is family. It is our friends. The greatest horrors in life is our division from relationship and relational experience. The greatest horror of all is our division of relationship and experience with the God who made us for himself. And that's my timer. I'm supposed to be done. Let's see if I can get it off. Use that. The alarm at this moment to say how God deals with it is in his very own son who is more passionate about extending our feasts than any of us are. But he deals with the primary problem, which is the problem of sin. Let me pray as we move into a time of reflection. 
God, I just pray right now that you really would in very, very real ways, far better than any way any of us can articulate a song or a sermon. God, you'd meet us relationally and experientially. I pray that in this moment where we can partake of your body and your blood, God, that we would realize that we are partaking of it because you are so passionate about extending our feasts. You're so passionate about our relationships with each other and ultimately our relationship with you. So God, let us now as we're quiet, God, just meet us in real ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen.